Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we do delight in, in the presence of Jesus in the midst tonight. We thank you for the full access that we have because he is our mediator. And so we can come with boldness even to the throne of grace tonight, knowing our sins are forgiven, knowing that he has cleared the way even for us to, to approach to you. And Father, I want to thank you that in your love you came and you found us, we who were unlovely, we who were enemies of yours, but you loved us. And that is real love, not that we should love you, but that you loved us even while we were enemies of the gospel, and you came. And Father, I want to thank you because Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God, was slain for us, that our sins should be removed, and that we should indeed become the children of God. We delight tonight to be your children. We thank you for your marvelous blessing upon us. And Father, tonight we ask that the Holy Spirit may come so that the words of life and the words of truth may glow even as we handle them tonight. Oh, Father, that we might know the fullness of blessing that comes from those who turn to your words. Thank you, Lord, that blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, who meditates in it day and night. And Father, we do meditate in your word even tonight. Just come and, Father, illumine our spirits. Give us enlightenment tonight, Lord, that indeed the words of truth that we hear might become part of us, that, Father, our whole Christian experience should be changed even by the things that we hear tonight. Oh, Father, you speak tonight. We just hand over the reins, and may you be glorified. May every word that is spoken glorify you, for it is with you that we have to do, and our whole duty is to glorify you even on this earth. Come and bless us all tonight, in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We have completed a study in the title, The Seed of Abraham. And last time we saw who was meant by the seed of Abraham. We ended the last study in this series in the book of Jeremiah in a wonderful passage. And I want to begin there this time so that we might refresh our minds. In Jeremiah 31, beginning verse 35 where we get a most wonderful promise. For tonight we are speaking on the subject of does Israel have a future? We really began it last time, but tonight we see some important things connected with the promises of God. Verse 35 tells us God's view towards Israel. Jeremiah 31 and verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. And what a marvellous statement, for it says that if the sun ever fails to get up one morning, then Israel is cast off as far as God is concerned. It's also, of course, true that if the sun fails to, to get up one morning, we're all cast off as far as God is concerned. 
if the moon one evening fails to shine, it's up there somewhere, but it's not reflecting the sun's light anymore, and this occurs for a period of time, then Israel is cast off. Notice what it also says. Let's read it just again in verse 37. If the heaven above can be measured. Now, scientists today are very busy measuring the heavens above. You know, and every year they seem to go a little further with their latest technology and they say, oh, we've now found another new star that we never knew existed. It was up there all the time, twinkling away to itself, but now we've picked it up. And, but next year they'll find a star beyond. And the truth is they've never yet reached the boundary of heaven. I hope there is no one in this room who has made the mistake that I used to make as a little boy and which the majority of people make as far as the world is concerned today, they think that heaven goes on and on and on and on and on and on forever. I remember as a little boy looking up and gazing, you know, and saying, well, where does it end? And my father said to me, it never ends. It goes on and on and on and on and on. I thought that was incredible. And actually, it was one of the things that led me to believe that there was a God. But actually, it was wrong. Because the, the heavens don't go on and on. Do you know there is an exact boundary that God has put round the heavens? If they do go on and on and on, then actually we've given them a divine characteristic, the characteristic of omnipresence. You see, only God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. Now, if you say that the heavens are infinite and go on and on and on, then actually what you're saying is that they share this characteristic with God, that you can never go anywhere where there isn't space, or you can't go anywhere where there isn't the universe. Oh no, the Bible says clearly that there is a limit there is a boundary even to the universe and space. And you might say, well, what's beyond that? Oh, well, that's where the Bible becomes even more wonderful. For it talks about the heavens and the universe being held in the palm of God's hands. Praise God. Scientists can't measure it, but God sort of loses it in the middle of his palm. Rather like a pea, you know, that he can fold over and uh, fold his hand over it and look after it with all the care that he has. There is a limit to the heaven above us. We know, of course, from the Bible that there's a place called the third heaven, which is where God is seated. Now, that is outside the universe. It's beyond the universe. Now, that's marvelous. So that actually, when we look up, honestly, it ends somewhere. And I'll tell you this, the day that you are raptured from the earth, or the day that you die... In a twinkling of an eye, you pass right through all of the universe that the scientists are unable to measure. And in the twinkling of an eye, in a millionth of a second, you turn up at the place beyond it. Isn't that wonderful? So we're all going to be astronauts, spiritual astronauts, one day of our lives. Then it says, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. The way that some geography books or geology books write, you'd think that they'd actually sent scientists down to the center of the earth to analyze everything. But actually the truth is very, very far from that. They've made some calculated guesses. I could explain to you how they've arrived at their conclusions, but I won't tonight. But if you ask me afterwards, I will explain. But actually, <coughs> they haven't even been down to the first layer of the earth. If you imagine the earth as a ball of custard, can you imagine a ball of custard that is let fly from an aircraft and it falls down and a skin develops around the ball of custard? Do you know that scientists are so clever they haven't even managed getting through the first layer, that is the skin of the earth? I think uh, one of the first projects was a project called the Moho Project. 
You see, M-O-H-O. Geographers always used to say, oh yes, mo-ho-ho and a barrel of funds. That's what they used to say, because it costs a lot of money. But you know, their idea was to drill down through the crust of the earth. They got about halfway through the crust, and the heat was so enormous, and the pressure so terrifying, they had to give up, and they called that a success. The result is that man hasn't yet begun searching out what is beneath the earth. Praise God. But if he ever does, then Israel is finished as far as being a nation is concerned. You see, the universe is vast, but it's not as big as God. And the earth has uh, released some of its secrets, but not all of its secrets. And believe you me, there's a lot to go yet. And the result is that God says that even today, because these things are true, Israel has not been cast off from before the Lord. Israel as a nation still exists. The question we're going to ask tonight, however, is, does Israel have a future as far as God is concerned? In other words, is is it true today that although Israel is out of fellowship, is it true that one day they will be back in fellowship as far as God is concerned and his anointed people, or has the church now replaced them once and for all? And in order to study this particular subject, we've got to look into what are the promises of God. One of the marvelous things about our God is he talks with us and communicates with us, and when he communicates, very often he makes promises to us. We saw some of the promises last time. You remember God promised Abraham he was going to have a son. Yeah? And so Abraham believed the word of the Lord, and what happened? He had a son. God promised Abraham that a multitude of descendants would come from him, and what happened? The word of the Lord came forth and came into fruition, and a multitude of descendants came from Abraham. You see? Now that's God's promise-keeping character. And what we have to say is, are there any promises that have been made to Israel which God has not yet fulfilled? That's what we've got to ask. Now, there are several promises that are unfulfilled, but we're just going to see one particular promise. Uh, First of all, turn to Numbers and chapter 23, where we have Balaam commenting about God. Now, Balaam was not an altogether good man, but he did know something about God. And in Numbers 23 and verse 19, here is the statement that he makes. Numbers 23, verse 19, a very, very famous verse of Scripture. God is not a man that he should lie. Thank you, Lord, that that's true. Nor the Son of Man that he should repent. The word repent means to change his mind. In other words, he doesn't think differently from the way he thought yesterday. I'm relieved about that too, because one day the Lord said to me, I love you. And praise God, he's never repented about that. He's never changed his mind. So that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I still know he loves me. Then it goes on. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And here is a statement about God saying that once God has made a promise, he has to keep it. And if we can find a promise which God has made to Israel, which is as yet unfulfilled, what do we know from the character of God? One day it will certainly be fulfilled. If it isn't fulfilled, what does it mean? It means our God is a liar. 
He's promised something that he's not going to fulfill. And if that is the case, my dearly beloved brethren, we have great doubt over our salvation. For God has promised that we will be with him always. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If he has lied to Israel, how do we know he's not lied to us? But we know of a surety by the testimony of the Spirit and by the testimony of the Word of God, he has not lied to us. And that means he has not lied to Israel. Praise God. And Israel has promises which are as yet unfulfilled. Now the one I'm going to take tonight is a promise or a covenant that God made to Abraham again after the Abrahamic covenant. And it is what I call the Palestinian covenant. P-A-L-E-S-T-I-N-I-A-N. It's what I call the Palestinian covenant. For the sake of completeness, let me just say this. Four major covenants were made to Israel. I wonder whether you could name them in your mind. Well, check them off. One, the Abrahamic covenant, which we dealt with last time. The second is the Palestinian covenant, which we will deal with tonight. The third is the Davidic covenant, which we dealt with in the last series of tapes. God promised Israel a king who was going to be the son of David. All right? That's been dealt with. And the fourth is a new covenant, that he would write his law even on their hearts. And I've done a series of tapes, for those who don't know what that last one is, called The Blood of the New Covenant. And in that tape, uh, in that series of tapes, I go into the New Covenant as far as Israel is concerned. But we're on number two tonight, the Palestinian Covenant. Now, this Palestinian Covenant is so called because it has to do with some real estate. That's what the Americans call land. It has to do with a plot of land which today we call, or is generally known in the world, as Palestine. On the map I've put up on the wall, if you see the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and towards the south, in other words, the southeast corner, that is the land of Palestine. All right? Now, there are a group of people called the Palestinians today, and their leader is Yasser Arafat, and their thinking about Palestine goes something like this. Well, they say, we, the Palestinians, should own the land. And when you say, why should you own the land? They say, because we were there first. We got there before Abraham and before the Jews got there. And that's perfectly true, by the way. They were there first. And many, many people today are, find that argument extremely convincing. What about us, who are Bible believers? We don't find it a bit convincing. In fact, we find it absolutely unsound. Because who lives in a plot of land actually is not determined by who got there first, but by who owns the land. For example, imagine a flat in Chichester here, and someone lived in it two years ago. And all of a sudden, they decide they'd like to move in again, and there's a tenant now in there, so they go up to the door, they knock on the front door and say, excuse me, I'm claiming back uh, this flat. And the person says, but you can't, I'm the new tenant. And they say, but I was here before you. In fact, I lived in this flat for several years before you even came on the scene. Now, you see, that's no good. All the tenant would have to do is get on the phone to the landlord and say, no, look, you own the flat. Who is the correct tenant? And the landlord will tell who the correct tenant is. So the question biblically is not who was there first, but who owns the land? Now, let's ask that. Who owns the land of Palestine? 
Well, God does. How do we know that? Well, Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so the issue is, God is the landlord of Palestine. Who has he dictated will be the tenant? You'll notice, by the way, with God owning the land, that contradicts our modern thinking in politics. The political thought today is that the state owns the land. That's not true. God owns the land, and God owns the state as well. Praise God. All right? So we've got to ask the question, who then has God given the land to? And so we have to turn back to the seedbed of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. So again, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. We'll be in Genesis quite a lot tonight. Genesis, chapter 12. And let's begin at verse 6, where God begins to speak to Abraham. All right, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 6. And Abram, I'm going to call him Abraham, by the way. Okay, his earlier name was Abram, but it saves confusion. And Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Sychem. Now, Sychem is simply another name for Shechem. All right? And Shechem is uh, in the, the middle of the land of Palestine. That is, halfway between the Mediterranean coast and the River Jordan, about halfway in between. It's actually in a valley between two very famous mountains, mountains which were going to be famous in the book of Deuteronomy, the Mountain of Blessing and the mountain, Mount of Cursing, those two mounts. All right, the Mount of Blessing was Gerizim, G-E-R-I-Z-I-M, and the Mount, uh, that's the Mount of Blessing, and the Mount of Cursing was Mount Ebal, E-B-A-L, and right between them is a valley with a plain attached to it, and Shechem is in the middle. And Abraham arrives at Shechem, and he starts looking round. Now look what it says. Uh, and Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. Now that should bring a smile to your face because God is actually admitting, yes, there were people already there. You see, it's perfectly true. And, and before God promises the land to Abraham, he actually states there are people already renting the land, right, as far as God is concerned. Verse 7, The Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Now that is a statement, uncompromising statement, unto your seed, that's your descendants, I will definitely give this land. Now today, Israel, it is true, part of Israel, is back in the land. So is it a fact that we can look at Israel and say, well, God's fulfilled his promise? The answer is no, not yet. He is fulfilling his promise, but he hasn't fulfilled his promise. And the reason for that is given as we go through two more passages in the book of Genesis. Turn next to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 13, and verse 14 and 15. Genesis 13, 14 and 15. Now you remember here, uh, Lot and Abraham haven't found it easy to live together. And they arrive at a particular place. This place actually is up in the mountains and overlooking the glorious Jordan Valley. 
And Abraham finally says, look, it's no use, Lot. We're going to have to part company. Um, have a look at the land, and whichever part of the land you choose to live, you can live there, and I'll have the other lot. And Lot looked this way, and what did he see? He saw nothing but barren mountains. And he looked down there, and there was the most beautiful river he'd ever seen, right? And the most beautiful fertile valley It was completely green in contrast to the stark yellow and brown of the hills. And so Lot, in natural viewpoint, looked down and said, oh, I think that looks pretty good. I think I'll have that place. So Abraham must have said, oh, I knew he'd choose that. Down he goes into the valley. And Abraham looks back into the land that he's left, and he lifts up his heart to the Lord and says, Lord, this is mine, you know. And God comes at that moment, and he speaks to him. And look what God actually says. Verse 14, the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, and look in the direction he must look. You must look northwards, right up to Mount Carmel and beyond. Look north. Then he says, after you've looked north, look south, right down towards the desert land and towards the wilderness. And then he says, and eastwards and westwards. Now, westwards we can accept. He looks west, and he might see all of the land, might even catch a glimpse of the Mediterranean from where he's standing, you see? But look what it says. It says, look eastwards. Now, when he looks eastwards, he sees not only the west bank of the Jordan, he sees the east bank of the Jordan as well, and more than that, he sees the whole of the land that we today call Jordan spread out before him. So he looks north, south, east, and west, and God says something to him, and look what he says, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now that's the statement. And can you see that today, the land which uh, the Jews occupy, or some of the Jews, actually it's only a few million. Do you know there are more Jews living in New York City than there are living in the land? you see? So it's only a few of them that are back in the land. That piece of land certainly doesn't begin to match up to the piece of land that Abraham was promised. Well, if you think that's big, you wait till the next chapter. Turn to uh, Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, again, Abraham is promised land. Verse 7, this is God speaking to Abraham. And God said to him, Genesis 15, verse 7, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And do you notice God speaks as if he owns the land, which he does. No question about it, saying, well, you'll have to wait till the next tenancy is up, and, you know, my hands are tied, and all the rest. He says, I promise you, th this is my decree, you're going to receive this land. And Abraham here suddenly says, now look, Lord, he says, I'm afraid I need you to sign on the dotted line. And so, uh, Abraham says to God, God, you promised me it, but how do I know that this land's going to be mine? I haven't got an agreement. You haven't actually put your mark on any piece of paper. And what happens is, and what is described in much of the rest of the chapter, is um, God signing a formal legal agreement with Abraham. This is called the cutting of the covenant. 
Now again, I've dealt with this in detail on the tapes and the blood of the new covenant, but basically it's this. Businessmen in the ancient world used to cut a covenant if they entered into legal agreement with one another. And it was a totally binding covenant. They used to take an animal or several animals, they used to cut them up the spine, in other words, divide them in half, lay the two pieces on the ground with the blood flowing in between, and they used to promise the, the terms of the agreement to one another. And then the sign that they'd signed the agreement was they used to walk between the pieces, getting the blood on the feet of their, their shoes. And what they used to say was, listen, as this dead carcass is spread out with two sides and it's unchangeable and unmovable, so is our agreement. And if I break it, may I be like this carcass. That's actually the type of promise that was entered into. And if you read it for yourselves then, uh, you'll notice that Abraham and God enter into a legal agreement. All right? They take, verse 9, take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He took uh, unto him all these, divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And so it goes on. Now when the time for signing occurs, here is the magnificence of the promise. And remember this promise is related to the land. What does God do? He doesn't want Abraham walking between the pieces. Because if Abraham walks between the pieces, what that means is that God will only fulfill his promise if Abraham fulfills his part of the bargain. And God knew Abraham well enough. And he certainly knew his descendants well enough to know if it was left to them, they'd never come into not a penny. Right? Not a single hectare of ground would they come into. And so what conveniently happens? Suddenly a deep sleep comes over Abraham. Right? God doesn't have to give him a sleeping draft. He just whispers in his ear, go to sleep, and off he goes. You see? And all of a sudden there's Abraham, and he's dozing away. And while he's dozing, God quickly signs the agreement and stops everything. So that finally we come to the position where God and God alone has signed the agreement. Now what does that mean? It means it's God has made a promise and it's nothing to do with Abraham or his descendants. In other words, they don't have to do a thing. Let's read that. All right, uh, if we, uh, we go down, verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And verse 17 then, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, these are God appearing on the earth, passed between those pieces. And so God says, I've made the promises, you have made me no promises whatsoever. In other words, Abraham, you're definitely going to come into this land. Very definitely indeed. And then, and here is the staggering part of this uh, chapter. In verse 18, we get a definition of the east and west boundaries of the land that God promised. And look what it says. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt. Now, the river of Egypt is the river Nile. Some people have said it's a little stream that runs along the border of present-day Israel. The word for stream in Hebrew is entirely different from the word for river. And this is the word for river, and it, the river of Egypt, obviously, is the river Nile. 
So the western border of the land is the river Nile. And look at the eastern border. Unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now that is quite staggering. Not the river Jordan, the river Euphrates. Now, to save you straining your eyes, I have drawn out a map of the land showing the east and west boundaries. We're not quite sure exactly where the north and south boundaries are. We'll see that, by the way, in just a minute. But can you see how vast this extent of land is? The river Jordan comes down here. This is the present area of land that Israel occupies. But God hasn't promised just that area. He's promised this vast area right over to the river Euphrates that goes down into the Persian Gulf. Now this means that the whole of Jordan is included, northern Saudi Arabia and southern Iraq in the piece of land that God has promised his people. All right? Now that's a, a huge area of land that God has promised uh, as far as they're concerned. And by the way, then in verse 19 and 20, he defines all the Canaanites that he's going to remove from the land. And this also confirms the extent of the land. But we won't read it through because it will take me too much time to tell you where these people are. But read it through for yourselves afterwards and try and find out, find out where they actually live. Now, Israel took that literally. They assumed that this was the area of land they were coming into. We know that quite simply, by the way. Let's have a look at the Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. Have a look at Joshua chapter 1. We all know verse 3, but have you ever read verse 4? The children of Israel have come out of Egypt, and they are, at the moment, going into the land. And look what it says. I begin verse 2, first of all. All right, verse 2. And it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. And here's the definition of the land. And here we get the northern and southern borders put in. From the wilderness. Now the wilderness was Sinai, then the areas on the east of the Jordan. This is the area they just passed through. Sinai, then you've got uh, Edom, Moab, and Ammon coming up. That's the wilderness. Then it goes on. And this Lebanon, where's Lebanon? It's to the north here, up here, to the north of present-day Israel. So it's from the south up to the north, and then he repeats what we've just seen. Even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, unto the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your present boundary. And this means that as far as God's word is concerned, this promise has not been fulfilled to Israel. And if you look through Israel's history, do you know they've never occupied this vast area. The nearest they came was under Solomon, when they actually touched on the Euphrates up here in the northeast. But they've never actually taken all of this land. So as we stand today, this is as yet unfulfilled. And God must give them the land. Now we're going to see how he's going to give them the land. 
You'll notice the promises, by the way, made in the verses we've read, and in Genesis 17, verse 8, but don't turn to that. It is forever. And that means Israel has a legal right on this land as long as the land exists. And today, even though they do not occupy it, it is legally theirs. Ah, so why is it they don't occupy the land, and why is it they never have occupied the land? The reason is because they kept getting out of fellowship with God. When Joshua went into the land, honestly, they were destined to take the whole of the land that God had given them. But they started getting out of fellowship. They started rebelling against God. They started worshipping false idols. And the result was they were finally extremely limited uh, in their land area. You can read the story, and it's a disastrous story, in the book of Judges, and they didn't spread. For us, by the way, as Christians, it's a warning. God has promised us glorious things. We do not come into many of them unless we are, of course, in fellowship with God. And if we get out of fellowship with God, we mustn't expect any blessings from God. For the unstable man, the double-minded man, must expect nothing from God at all. Oh no, we've got to learn from Israel's mistakes. And actually, what has happened, if you look at the history of Israel, sometimes they've been in the land, sometimes they've been out of the land. And it's always been God's judgment. But the great thing about it is, even though God at times has removed them from the land, the land has still been legally theirs. And as soon as they've repented and turned back to God, they've come back into the land. It's most glorious. I think we saw uh, God's warnings to the Jews when we dealt with the five cycles of discipline. God warned the Jews. This is in the second basic series. He said, look, as long as you're in fellowship with me, there'll be marvelous blessing. But if you get out of fellowship, I'm going to start disciplining you, and my discipline will come in five stages. All right? Let's have a look at the fifth stage, just to check that. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26. They're given in Leviticus 26 and Leviticus, uh, sorry, and Deuteronomy 28. They're the five cycles of discipline. Let's just read the fifth cycle in Leviticus 26. All right, <clears throat> and verse 27, If ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And then he goes on and he lists the discipline that will come upon them. Verse 33 is the one that affects us. And I will scatter you among the heathen. In other words, I will remove you from your land, and you'll be taken into the lands of the heathen, and there you will live and have your being until finally you repent. All right, and come back to me. And he promises. And the land will be desolate, it says, and the land will be in rest. Now, when we look at the history of Israel, we can see three distinct uh, times in which God warned them that they'd be removed. He told them that they'd go, and three times in which they went from the land. But he also three times said, you will be restored, and twice they've been restored, and the third restoration is occurring even in our days. Praise God. There are no others prophesied, by the way. This is the final one, probably, as far as we know. Let's have a look at these three dispersals. The first one, Abraham was told, Abraham was told of it. We won't turn to the particular passage, but we've, it's in uh, Genesis 15, 
Abraham was warned. He said, look, this land's going to be yours, but the day is coming when you will be removed from this land and you will go into a land, the land of Egypt, and you will be slaves to the people down there. Do you know why Abraham's descendants were removed from the land? It was because they became corrupt uh, spiritually. Absolutely corrupt as far as God was concerned. There was a tremendous decline as far as spirituality was concerned. And by the time that the great-grandchildren of Abraham came along, uh, there had actually been a decline spiritually, which was disastrous. Abraham, he wanted to keep family unity. Right? We see that in his dealings with Lot. And yet his great-grandsons, they didn't bother about it. We know that they, they tried to uh, murder Joseph. They nearly succeeded in murdering Joseph. Onan refused to obey the customary law as far as his sister-in-law was concerned, you know? And Judah, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, refused deceitfully to give his son to Tamar. They didn't care less. Abraham kept himself from the Canaanitish religion very stringently. And yet four generations on, they couldn't care less. Judah, his great-grandson, he didn't care. He just went and had sexual relationships with one of the sacred prostitutes from the Canaanitish temple. He didn't think twice about it. You see, there was a decline. Abraham built altars to the Lord and worshipped the Lord, and God appeared to him. That wasn't true by the time four generations had gone. And as a result of the spiritual decline, they were taken into the land of Egypt, just as God said they would be. And there, for another four generations, they lived. Until finally, under um, Moses, God led them out. Now, that was the first. The second is what we call the Babylonian, the Babylonian captivity. And this is a very interesting one for us, and one which is relevant tonight. For here, in Jeremiah's day, Israel began to decline again. And Jeremiah warned them, if you continue to decline like this, the fifth cycle of disciplines coming upon you, you're going to be taken out of the land. And they didn't believe him. And God finally had to come down and discipline them. The discipline began in 606 BC, when the first people were removed from the land. It, the dispersal occurred over a period of 20 years, down to 586 BC. And during that 20-year period, people were leaving the land constantly. But Jeremiah, because of God's grace, in Jeremiah 29, had prophesied something else. It's only going to last 70 years. And we see, if you add on 70 years to 606, you come to 536 BC. Remember, you count backwards, right? Before Christ. 536 BC. And in 536 BC, the first people came back into the land. If you add 70 years on to 586, you come to 516 BC, which is when the temple was completed in the land. And isn't that glorious? The dispersal occurred over a 20-year period, and the restoration occurred over a 20-year period. Right? Now, that was the second time. What about the third time? Now, this is the one that's relevant for us. And we find this prophesied by Jesus himself. So let's turn to the New Testament and turn to Luke and chapter 21. In Luke 21, Jesus talks to the people. All right, Luke 21, and beginning verse 20, he's saying this in about AD 33. 
Look what he says. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed about, verse 20, with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance that are that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be a great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. That is, they're going to be killed. And you know, 1,900,000 Jews were killed when this prophecy was fulfilled just 40 years later. 1,900,000 Jews were killed. Where were the believers? They've listened to the word of Jesus. They were out of town. Praise God. Then it says, And others shall be led away captive into all nations. And that captivity still applies very largely today. They're in Russia. Some are in England. Some are in France. Some are in Canada. Some are in the United States. Some are in China. They're all around the world. They're still dispersed. They will be taken captive and dispersed as far as the earth is concerned. All right, now that is the promise. But notice the promise of restoration. Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And what that means is, when the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled, and I'm going to explain that in another Bible study, then the Jews will be restored. Now, let's have a look at how it developed. They were warned about this for seven years. A.D. 26... John the Baptist began preaching. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The baptism of fire is coming upon you. Right? You're going to be like the, the chaff. You're going to be burnt up. Be careful. Repent. That's what he said. In AD 30, these are approximate, of course, Jesus began his ministry. And in AD 33, Jesus was murdered. The Jews and the Gentiles murdered Jesus. Now, in AD 33, because they'd rejected the very Son of God, the Jews were cut off as far as God is concerned. They went immediately into the fifth cycle of discipline. But here is the grace of God. He allowed them 40 years of repentance before finally removing them from the land. 40 years in which they could repent. If you add 40 years on to AD 26, you come to A.D. 66. What happened in A.D. 66? The Roman armies invaded Palestine. And then they marched. The beginning of the Jewish war. If you add 40 years onto A.D. 33, you come to A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? The temple was destroyed in the city of Jerusalem, according to the word of the Lord. And what happened in, uh, if you add 40 years onto A.D. 33, you come to A.D. 73, and what happened then? It was the end of the Jewish war. It ended when the last of the Jews who were hidden away up in a, a hilltop refuge, fortress, called Masada, committed suicide to a man. And do you know it was on the 40th anniversary of the day that Judas Iscariot himself committed suicide when he betrayed Jesus? It was 40 years during which God gave the Jewish nation a chance to repent. And during this 40 years, Israel could have repented, but they never did. 
They Finally, the people who preached to Israel had to turn to the Gentiles. Since AD 66 to 73, the Jewish nation has been scattered. But the restoration has begun. Isn't it interesting that this uh, dispersal occurred over a 40-year period, or at the most from AD 26 to AD 73? That's 40 or 47 years. That's very interesting. Now, in the second, the Babylonian captivity, there was symmetry. 20 years of, being, of coming in to the uh, bondage, 20 years of coming out. We don't know whether there's going to be symmetry this time, but if there is, we're rather close, you know, to the very end. Let me show you how close it could be. In 1948, the Jewish nation was restored legally. The land of Israel came into existence again. For the first time since AD 66 to 73, and Bible believers in that period had said, the Jews are coming back to the land. The Word of God declares it, and they'll be back. 1948, great rejoicing, the Jews were back. And they weren't going to call it Judah either. They were going to call it Israel. All right. The restoration began in 1948. We haven't seen the full restoration yet. It is but the fig tree putting forth its leaves. And you know that summer is very close. In 1967... For the first time since AD 66 and 70, the Jews regained control, political control, of the capital city, Jerusalem. The fig tree is putting forth its leaves. Is it going to be 40 years or 47 years? We don't know. But if it is, the 1980s and the 1990s are more crucial than any of us could ever have imagined. The time is really late. It is time for the church to realize just how late the day is. All right? Now that's it. We don't know. I'll let you do the arithmetic. 1948 plus 40 or perhaps plus 47. It could just be. We just don't know. But it's coming. And Jesus said, don't be foolish. Read the signs. You know, when there's a red sky at night, right? You know what's going to happen tomorrow. If there's a red sky in the morning, you probably know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Or during that day. When the, the daffodils come up, don't you know that spring has come? Yes. And what follows spring? Summer's coming. And when Israel starts putting forth its leaves, beloved, it's time. The time is drawing fast to a close. Israel is going to be restored. But let me just say this. At the moment, Zionism is claiming the responsibility. But Zionism is a man's political system. It's like any other political system. It is not going to be Zionism that restores Israel. Who is it going to be? It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself who shall restore Israel. And when he returns again, they will come into the fullness of blessing. They will get all the land, right from the Mediterranean and the River Nile, right through to the Euphrates. For Jesus Christ himself shall return personally to this earth, and he will regather Israel. Zionism is still claiming the victory, and that's why I think dark days are ahead. For God has got to show the bankruptcy of Zionism. He must do it. They're not going to glory. In fact, they'll reach the end, the despair. They'll think that Israel is finished and God is going to intervene. And we're going to see in a few uh, Bible studies time how God personally intervenes. And we're going to see what could be the Third World War, but how God actually wins the battle. Praise God. And it's not the Battle of Armageddon either. 
by the way. Oh, it's glorious and wonderful. The Bible is emphatic on this point. It is the Lord himself who shall regather Israel and no one else. And it won't just be a few regathered, it will be them all regathered. Do you see? That's why they can't fit in this little bit of land. There are so many of them, they're going to need the whole expanse of land. Praise God. And it will blossom like a rose. The Saudi Arabians are going to be amazed. The believers who are still around, by the way. They're going to be absolutely staggered. If King Hussein is there, he's going to say, well, I never managed to do this. Super. It's God. Could I just show you some prophecies in the Old Testament that show and emphasize the fact that it is Jesus who will restore the land to Israel, and it is Jesus who will regather them. Let's have a look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Verse 11, let me just read it through. I'm not going to go into the full details tonight, but if you take it literally, it becomes easy. I don't know how people who spiritualize prophecy actually manage with verses like this. They must find it extremely hard. Verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day, which is that day, that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself returns, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. When was the first time? It was after the Babylonian captivity. That was the first time. But he's going to do it again. That's what it's, he says, praise God. And we're going to see it. To recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, these are the areas, by the way, that still exist, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from all the isles of the sea, including Long Island and Manhattan Island and the British Island. Praise God. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, Ephraim shall not envy Judah, Judah shall not vex Ephraim. They shall swoop upon the slopes of the Philistines towards the west. Right, that's where all the African ones are going to come up. They're going to travel right across the land of Philistia. They shall spoil them, of the east together, they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, the children of Ammon shall obey them. That's the east bank of the Jordan. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. In other words, they won't have to take to boats. It's going to be dry land. Right? It's going to dry it up, and they can walk across. Praise God. Then it says, and with his mighty wind he shall shake his hand over the river, that's the Euphrates, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and men shall go over dry shod. In other words, he's going to make it easy for them to come home. Then it says, And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. That's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Turn to Jeremiah, and let's see little verses in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23. <clears throat> Verse 7, in verse 5 and 6, they talk about Jesus. Verse 7, Jeremiah 23, verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. They're not going to say that anymore. But what will they say, in, say instead? But the Lord liveth, 
which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Praise God. It's going to come to pass. Isn't that wonderful? Who's going to bring them back? Jesus will bring them back. Jeremiah 30 and verse 3. There are so many, I've just picked out these few. Jeremiah 30, verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And they never have, but they will, praise God, because God is true to his word. If, if they don't, if it's spiritual, God has not fulfilled his word. And it's finished. All right, just over the page, Jeremiah 31, and let's read from 7 onwards. All beautiful. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. That's what we pray today. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. Not Zionism. Not the United Nations. You know, thank you, United Nations, for helping us in this way. It's not going to be that. Not Britain or America. I will do it. The Lord God will do it. I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together. A great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. That's weeping with joy. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, which is what I'm doing tonight, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine, for oil, for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Does Israel have a future as far as God is concerned? Oh, definitely yes. He has not cast off his people forever. At the moment they are cut off, but the time is coming when they are coming back in to all that is theirs. And praise God, we the church are the people of God, but we're not the last word. Israel is coming back. Israel still has a future. Praise his wonderful name. Next time I'm going to be talking about what really happened on the day of Pentecost. God bless you all. Amen.